And for the rest of you, if you've got your Bible on your phone or if you've got a hard copy, please take it out. And we are going to be looking at the book of Colossians. And we're going to be doing this for the next six months or so. So I would encourage you to, uh, in your own personal devotions, however you study the Word of God, that as part of your devotions, you will be studying the book of Colossians, all right? Because that's what we're going to be doing together as a church. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but every week I send out some questions on Church Suite uh, for you to think about, for you to pray about, for you to discuss in um, your life groups. And I, I really trust that you, you, you would be using those as well, just to help us think together and to prayerfully consider what God is saying to us as a, as a local church. So... We're going to be looking at this theme of Colossians, and really the whole book of Colossians is about the supremacy of Jesus, the supremacy of Christ. And so I'd like to start by just um, uh, setting a, a background, if you like, to why I, I would like us to study this book this year. And the question is, well, wh well, why should we study Colossians specifically? What does Colossians have to say to us today as 21st century people living in the UK? Well, let me begin by saying this, that every one of us faces the challenge of a great deal of different opinions around spirituality and human philosophy and how we should get on with each other. And these different opinions vie and clamor for our attention. And I want to put it to you this morning that perhaps out of all the books of the New Testament, Colossians is the one book that speaks into our context incredibly powerfully in terms of the spiritual climate in which we are engaged right now. Our, our, our modern kind of culture is synchronistic, it's individualistic, it's relative, and if there is one book that speaks powerfully into that context, it's the book of Colossians. All right? We live in an atomic age. We live in a, a technologically advanced age, probably the most advanced of all time. And that's borne out with our growing dependence on social media and the internet. And as in the past, humans still continue to believe in our own ability to solve every problem apart from God as He's revealed in the Scripture. And so through every avenue, popular culture continues to offer man-made solutions to the ills of society, whether in the forms of, uh, form of secular humanism or religious syncretism or pluralism. Uh, this is the, the answer our culture gives to our problems. However, I do want to say that it's becoming more apparent that more and more people are tired of materialism and the futility of materialism and are becoming dissatisfied with the idea that life is just a cosmic accident and we better get used to it. And there are some in our culture that do say they have no religious belief at all, but there's a large portion of, pop of the population that are trying to explore spirituality in some way. And in the re recent past, uh, certainly when I was younger, um, the exploration of spiritual things was broadly uh, under the banner of New Age thinking. And that encompassed a whole variety of practices and thought about spirituality uh, under this kind of banner of the New Age. Uh, and uh, it's begun, uh, e even in the last 50 years, it's begun to continue to morph and change. Um, and so, uh, just to set a context, for, for many years now, there have been people that have been saying, that we are on the brink of an entirely new um, age of human achievement. Uh, we are on the brink of great human potential. And that one day, the world is going to be unified. There will be an end to war. There will be an end to hunger. There will be a redistribution of wealth and resources. 
and population control, and we'll get the environment under control, and this is going to lead to a great, great um, equality amongst races, religions, between men and women, and provide a global kind of ethic by which we can all live by, where all people will be seen as equal and valid. This is, this is the spirit of our age. And in, in, in that kind of context, our generation wants to take religion out of our rational thinking, out of our, in, uh, our discussions with each other, and wants to relegate it to the, the zone of personal preference. <laughs> Don't speak about it in the culture, but whatever you want to do individually, personally, well, that's your, that's your preference. And it's like there's so many different flavors of ice cream. I can think probably of 30-plus flavors of ice cream, if you like Italian ice cream like I do. The, the idea is, well, why not have as many preferences of religion as there are preferences of, of ice cream? I mean, we can all have our own idea about God. We can all have our own idea formed in our image of who God is because we're all individuals. This is, the, this is what our culture says. And so why, why shouldn't we choose a culture, a, a, a religion that is compatible with our private values? Why, to have meaningful faith, surely that means it needs to, faith must agree with my deeply held convictions. And in that sense, what works for you is not going to work for me. And so in our culture, individualism and relativism are highly valued, and uh, the gods of that kind of thinking are tolerant of sexual preferences, radical feminism, personal pleasure at the forefront of everything. And this is how our culture views spirituality. And I put it to you again this morning that into that context, Colossians speaks powerfully to us. It speaks directly into that kind of 21st century thinking. And I want to put it to you, as I've said to some in private, that this idea of spirituality that we've inherited in the 21st century is not new. <laughs> it's as ancient as the story of the Garden of Eden, where our first parents in the garden were tempted to believe that they too could become godlike. It's as ancient as that. And so this syncretism that puts things together in our 21st century really promotes the idea of monoism. And I'm not trying to get technical. I'm just trying to help you understand the context of why I feel Colossians is so important. Monoism just says that all is one. Everything is interrelated. Everything is interdependent. Everything is, penetrates each other. It promotes the idea that human nature and God and the creation are not separate from each other, but they are one. And this is what New Age writers have been saying for 50 or 60 years. It's all one. So there's a guy called John Randolph Price, and he said we should all affirm this. I and the Father are one, and the Father, all the Father has is mine. In truth, I am the Christ of God. And then he says we need to deal with those that are uninvolved and ignorant who deny the divinity of men. This is what the New Age kind of spirituality teaches, that you and I are gods. We're not separate from creation. It's not that God has created us, but we all are godlike. And so there's the sense of pantheism. That means God in everything. That teaches all is God. But it's not like a personal relationship with a personal being. It's an impersonal energy, a force, a consciousness that penetrates everything, and so out of that come, naturally comes this thinking that actually if all is one and all is God, we too are gods. And so what this 
culture would, would have us do uh, this kind of spiritual kind of um, uh, position tries to say, well, there's God who's, who's lying dormant in all of us, and, and we need to allow God to be awakened within us and teach us to live like the gods that we are. So in the past, uh, humanism has said man is the measure of all things, and now because of this kind of thinking, weaving in with that, uh, the, we, the, the conclusion is that there's God, Godhood for all of us. We all can become godlike. And as I've said already, these are not new ideas. This is what Satan tempted in the Garden of Eden, our, for, our, our parents with, you too can become like God. It's not a new thing. So that's, that's the reason that I want us to learn about Jesus. Because Paul speaks into this kind of culture of his day, which is very similar. And I will show you that there are some very similar things that Paul was addressing in the Colossian church that are connected with what we face in the 21st century today. And this book is absolutely relevant to all of us. So I wanted just to begin then, if you can put up Josh, please. There's just a little idea of you to see where this church was. So there you can see, this is a, just a very simple picture. Uh, on the left, Sicily and Italy. In the middle, Greece. And you can see Corinth down in the south. And then to the east of that, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, is Ephesus. Can you see Ephesus there? And then a little bit further west is Colossae, which is the book that we're talking about written to the Colossian church. And then on the right of that, can you see Tarsus there by Sicilia? That's where Paul came from, right? Paul was a Turk. Paul was Turkish. I'm sorry, Mario, he wasn't Greek, all right? <laughs> he, he, was, he was Turkish, all right? Uh, we would call him t Turkish from that area, which the Bible, in Bible times is called Galatia, Asia, Asia Minor. And so, just to give you a context so you know kind of where the city was, there it was, okay? Uh, in that part of, of modern-day Turkey. And about, about 400 B.C., it was, a, it was a thriving city center and was located on a major trade route. And historians report and say that actually armies used to go through Colossia as they were on, on route to other places. And as I said, it's already modern-day modern Turkey. And then, as uh, happens, uh, some bureaucrat, and remember this was part of uh, the Roman Empire, um, decided that they needed to have some new roads built, and they bypassed Colossia with the new roads that they, they built, and the city of Laodicea became more important. I haven't got it on the map, but that should ring some bells with you, remember? In the book of Reve Revelation, when God is speaking to all the churches, He says a number of things about Laodicea as a church. He says, they were, they, they were rich and felt they did not need anything, but Christ said, you are wretched, poor, pitiful, and naked. That's what he says about the church in Laodicea. And uh, so having been an important city center, important business center because of this, uh, this route that was built around Colossa, it ceased to be so important. So by the time that Paul writes the letter to Colossa, it's no longer a big city. It's kind of a small little town. Um, and Laodicea and Hierapolis are, are much more important cities. And actually later in AD 61, there was a massive earthquake, and Colossia was never rebuilt. So that just gives you some history so you can understand the context in which Paul is writing. And how did, how did the gospel reach this place? Well, Paul was very sharp. Paul, uh, wherever he planted churches, he went down the Roman roads, and he planted into major centers of industry and of, of commerce, and that's how 
he spread the gospel so quickly. And if it wasn't for the Roman roads, the gospel wouldn't have spread so quickly. But Paul used that um, in a very profound way. We know, too, also that Paul didn't actually visit Colossia himself. But he did spend a lot of time in Ephesus. Remember? He spent lots and lots of time in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. He had three missionary journeys. And so we can assume that the gospel was taken from Ephesus to Colossa, and there were several people that are mentioned in the New Testament that we can presume were part of that. We can presume also that there was some strong teaching that had come to Colossia during that time of, of the church being birthed. But now in Paul's later life, remember he's in prison at Rome. We know that uh, from Acts 28, and he writes all these letters. This guy called Epaphras comes to him from the church in Colossia, and he says, actually, Paul, there's some problems in the church. Can I tell you about them? And so he tells Paul about the problems in the Colossian church, and Paul writes back through Epaphras, he writes this letter to the Colossian church. Remember when we were studying Galatians? There were problems in the Galatian church, and Paul wrote a letter. What was the problem of the Galatian church? They were into legalism. They thought that their behavior and their good morality was going to help them in their relationship with God. And Paul writes this powerful letter in Galatians and says, no, you got it all wrong. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His grace. That's all you need. And similarly, here the church in Colossia has got some problems. And so Paul writes to address those problems in the church. And so thirdly, then just the third little element, just to help us understand Paul's context, who are the people that helped to spread the gospel? Well, there were, there were certainly a whole lot of Jewish people that helped to do that. And uh, as, as you know, after the fall of the, the, Roman king, uh, the, the northern kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom was defeated by the Syrians, and uh, they were taken off into captivity, and the Jews were scattered all over the place. And so we know from the Gospels, too, that Jesus had a problem with some of the Jewish believers, didn't he? What did he say? He said there was a problem with legalism, there was a problem with ritualism, there was a problem with observing holy days, and they had, they had lost the heart of what God was trying to say through his people. And that's why Jesus fought with the, with the Pharisees all the time. And so there, certainly the gospel had been th spread through a, a part, part, part of the Jewish um, uh, nation that had been um, diaspora, that's the word, yes, spread out all over the place. And then, of course, into that context, the, the, the Romans worshipped many, many gods, didn't they? So the Romans worshipped many, many gods, and um, they had many gods and goddesses that they believed in. That was also part of the culture. And then, thirdly, we're learning from the, in Colossia, there was this other group of people that Paul is addressing in the Colossian church that tried to combine a whole lot of ideas together. And so they took some ancient Eastern ideas, they took some ideas of Greek philosophy and various other pagan practices, and they tried to put them all together in the Colossian church. And that is why Paul begins to write and say, uh -uh, I want you to not focus on all that stuff you're trying to put together. I want you to focus on the supreme one who is Jesus. All right? And that's why he writes this letter about the su su supremacy of, of Christ. And so there's this kind of false teaching, and we're going to look at it in chapter 2. It's kind of called the Colossian heresy, where all of these synchronistic ideas are being put together. And by the end of the third century, there was this thing called Gnosticism which was a, 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 a thinking that had influenced the church, which, which, which highlighted philosophy and Greek thinking as the most important thing. And they taught, the Gnostics taught, that only certain people are saved. 
The ones that are saved are the special ones. And the special ones have special revelation from God that nobody else has. Only the special ones have this revelation. And uh, this is what we can see the seeds of this in the Colossian letter. And uh, that, uh, I always think of super spiritual people when I, when I think of Gnosticism. You know, there's still people like that in the church. You don't quite have revelation like I do. I have special revelation about prayer. You don't have the revelation that I have. I have special revelation about the Holy Spirit. You don't have this. That's Gnostic thinking. The gospel says this, Christ is enough. The cross is sufficient. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to wipe away all sin. All you need is to believe by faith, and the Holy Spirit leads you as you obey Him. That is all you need. You don't need any secret revelation that no one else has. You just need Jesus, the supreme one in your life. And this is what Paul is writing. And so we're going to see as we study this book together, this is kind of Jewish uh, thing that Paul addresses in this letter, stressing, they, they said you need to observe the Old Testament laws and ceremonies. Paul says, mm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. There's all sorts of philosophical thinking in the second chapter. Paul says you don't have to worry about that. The worship of angels. Paul addresses it directly in this letter. I'm fascinated how, how many Christians are, are fascinated by angels. Why? Angels are just messengers from God. They've got no, nothing more important than, than that. And that's a, our Hollywood culture has encouraged us to think about angels as special people that walk around invisible next to you. Yeah? Well, we, we need to look at what the Bible says about angels, all right? Who's your guardian angel and all this kind of stuff? We only need the Holy Spirit, all right? It's true, it's true that there are angels. I'm not knocking that. But we, but we need to think a little bit more clearly about what the Bible says about angelic beings. And Paul says, don't worship angels. Don't give them a place they don't have. They are servants. They are messengers. There's the one that is supreme above all. His name is Jesus. Okay. And then ultimately, these, this kind of thinking denies the deity of Christ. And so... The Colossians, what they were trying to do is to fit all these beliefs into one. They were trying to synchronize all these beliefs. And Paul writes and says, no, no, there's one that is above every belief. His name is Jesus. And so the Colossians didn't deny Jesus. They, they, he was one of many. But they didn't give him supreme place. And Paul is saying, no, he's not just one of many. He is supreme above all. And so what does that have to say into our um, day and age, <clears throat> we're going to look, and I hope already you're seeing some connections, because our culture says, Jesus is just one of many, just one of many. Buddha, whatever you think, your personal preference, there are all these preferences that you can decide, and Jesus is just one of many preferences, and if Jesus works for you, that's cool, but you know, Jesus doesn't work for me, and so I don't need to choose Jesus. This is, this is the tone of our culture. How does Paul address that? Well, I want to put it to you simply, that Paul takes on the challenge of addressing that kind of thinking by painting. If I was a painter, you know, we watch um, uh, portrait, portrait Oscar of the Year. You know, we're getting old, so we like to watch painting programs, all right? But you see these incredible artists that draw these amazing portraits. And this is what Paul does in the book of Colossians. He doesn't just draw a face of Jesus. He, he, he paints a full-length portrait in all its height and depth and breadth of who Jesus is. 
That's how he addresses these things. He doesn't address their behavior. He doesn't say, stop believing that. Uh, stop uh, stop, stop um, acting like that. Be careful you don't do that. No, what he starts by doing is getting them to understand the greatness of who Christ is, the, the supremacy of Jesus over all things, over the universe, over all of us. His lordship is the creator of all. And Paul uses this powerful language to paint this picture of Jesus that is just in technicolor and broad and huge and massive so that people get it. And he says, I want you to understand Jesus like that. And once you understand Jesus like that, all the other stuff, your behavior, what you believe, it all aligns because of your picture of Christ. So I want to kindly say to you, if you're struggling in an area of your life, I want to encourage you to put all of your energy into understanding and asking the Holy Spirit to give you a big picture of who Jesus is. Because I've discovered this in my life. When, when the, pic, the picture that I have of Jesus, and I'm spraying this morning, I'm sorry. The picture of Jesus that I have in my life is big. Life's problems start to become smaller and take their proper place. And when my picture of Jesus shrinks and I allow circumstances and, and uh, all a whole lot of stuff to push in on my heart and my heart becomes contracted and small and Jesus becomes smaller in my life, what happens? The problems of life become bigger and bigger and bigger. And we get concerned with the problems. I'm asking you, I'm asking you kindly, let Jesus speak to you about how great he is about how magnificent he is, about how he is the ruler and author of every good thing in your life. Ask him to enlarge that in your heart. And when you see that, what, is the, what does that old child song say? And the things of this earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. So Paul paints this amazing picture of the supremacy, the preeminence, the headship, the sole sufficiency of Jesus for every believer. And I want to put it to you, and if you've got your Bibles, just follow me quickly. I'm just going to look at a couple of key uh, language things in the first couple of chapters that Paul uses to help us to understand this picture that he's trying to paint of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Jesus is God's Son. Verse 14, He is the Redeemer. Verse 15, He is the very image of God. Verse 15, He is the Lord of all creation. Verse 18, He is the head of the church. Verse 19, Jesus is the fullness of salvation. Verse 20, He's the reconciler of the universe. I love this verse in chapter 2, verse 3. The one in whom contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Paul is saying, in Jesus, all wisdom and all knowledge resides. Um, verse 8 of chapter 2, the standard by which all religious teaching is measured and judged is Jesus. The fullness of God in His undiminished deity. Verse 9 of chapter 2. Remember, we looked at the incarnation over Christmas. Uh, verse 10, the one, Jesus, under whom all power and authority is subject. All power and authority in the universe is subject to Christ. He has victor over every cosmic power. Verse 15. Verse 17, all that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament and in the rituals of the Old Testament and the observances of the Old Testament is, finds its fullness in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
He is exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. Verse uh, 3, the one in whom we are complete and in whom our life is hidden, protected, and kept. Oh man, that is so thrilling. Your life is hidden in Christ. You don't have to worry in any way. I'm speaking to myself now about your future, about the future of your children, about anything, because your life is hidden in Christ. These are the amazing promises, and I could go on and on. So what does Paul do? Paul, Paul comes and comes against false thinking and false theology with this big Christology, this amazing picture of Jesus. And then once he's done that, once he's painted this amazing picture of Jesus, then he says, this is how it works out in your life practically. For those of you that are visiting, I am quite a loud guy. So I'm not angry or anything, all right? I'm sorry if you find it a bit overwhelming on the first time. I, th I think so, so people get used to it sometimes, right? But I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm just loud. My point is this. False theology, and I've said this before, every one of us is a theologian. Everyone thinks about God in certain ways. False thinking about God always leads to wrong living. Always. That's Paul's point. If you think incorrectly about God... If you don't understand who he is, what he's done for you, that how, how he saved you, that always causes you to lead a life of wrong behavior. When you understand who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done for you, what happens is that from the inside, good things begin to flow because they all get the correct perspective. You understand who you are. You understand your sinful nature. You understand what God has offered to you in Christ to save you from that so that you can start living not by your own effort, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who's at work in you. It all starts from the inside, and it all goes from the inside out. I've said this so many times. Can I just say it again in case you've forgotten? Too many of us, too many people in the church live from the outside in, controlling people's behavior. Don't eat that, don't drink that, don't wear that dress. Don't do that, don't do that. Outside in, my friends, it's inside out. If you love Jesus from, with all your heart, you will not want to drink in front of someone that is going to struggle if you drink. You're not going to dress in a seductive way. It's not good for other people. I must say, I had to have a little chuckle. Well, you know, I think all that's happening in Hollywood right now is right, and, and there's um, uh, all the stuff about uh, sexual exploitation does need to be dealt with in a profound way. But I saw a picture of one of the ladies at um, the awards in a black dress, which showed almost all of her breasts. And I thought, that's interesting. You're protesting sexual exploitation. You, you're protesting kind of like you don't want people to take advantage of you, and yet I can see most of your breasts. Our culture gets weird. <laughs> so what, my point is we have to learn to live from the inside out, as Paul says, and have a picture of Jesus that helps us to view our lives in the, in, in the way that God wants us to use them. So, I would say to you this morning that there are certainly things in, the, in what Paul was dealing with that are not quite the same of what, what we are dealing with today, but this idea of religious and philosophical ideas, which Paul calls vain imaginations of men, 
they are still prevalent in our society, and no matter what religious or humanistic idea is being promoted right now, Colossians speaks cloudly, cloudly, clearly and loudly into that. And the second thing I want to say by way of introduction this morning is that let, let us remember that the context that we live in today is a, a context where religious tolerance is interpreted to mean one religion is exactly the same as the other. That's the context in which we live. And there are people that try and take the best from various religious systems and manufacture their own personal private religion. And as I've said already, many people just say, well, Jesus is just one of several great religious teachers. He doesn't have any more authority than them. He may be prominent, he may be important, but he's not preeminent. He's not the only one. There are many others. And so that's clearly worked out in our, in our society in an individualistic view of, of uh, spirituality. And it's synch synchronistic. It tries to put a whole lot of things together. And so I put it to you, in the ch church of Jesus, we can be in danger of diluting faith in a loving attempt to understand the belief of other people. Unconsciously, we can dilute, dilute faith in the church. And so legalism and mysticism and Eastern religion and asceticism and all these kind of man-made philosophies secretly start to seep into the church of Jesus. And they don't deny Jesus. They don't deny Christ, but they dethrone him. They rob him of his rightful place and he's at the right hand of the Father. And they dethrone him. And so he's no longer seen in, as the Savior of all. That's why I chose those songs this morning. Speaking about Jesus being the only one. He's the name above all names. What a beautiful name it is. There's no other name like the name of Jesus. I want to get that into your hearts. So that you lovingly, lovingly, kindly stand for faith in Christ Jesus. Not in a pious religious way judging other people. I'll speak about that just now. But we can see this in terms of our, our culture, businesses and communities. People who live next door to you, I guarantee you, most of them believe that it doesn't matter what God you pray to because basically every God is the same God, just in a different name. That's what they believe. That's what people believe. Synchronistic. It's all just one mishmash. It doesn't matter how you express it. The Bible's quite clear. Colossians is quite clear. There is one who is supreme over all, over every God in the universe. There's one who's supreme. His name is Jesus. And He alone is at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling in power right now. Well, I want to just remind you of this as well. Remember the early Christians? They were killed by Nero and others. They weren't killed because they worshipped Jesus. The Romans didn't care who you worshipped. You could worship any god. The Romans didn't care. There was um, a cult of Mithras, which was popular uh, in the early 50 years after Jesus um, died and was resurrected. It was a Persian uh, form of Zoroastrianism. I mentioned before, Freddie Mercury was a Zoroastrianism. And, and it, that talks about uh, the difference between light and dark. And this was a very popular religion in the, uh, in the early time. And nobody cared who worshipped what, as long as the worshipper agreed to worship Caesar as well. You can worship every, any god you like, but the Romans said, our gods, our Caesars are gods, and you can worship Jesus, but you must worship Caesar as well. And when the Christians refused to worship Caesar, they were killed. 
Are you with me? There's the same pressure on you and I today. Just give in. <laughs> you can say Jesus is a great guy, but don't say he's the only one. Don't, don't say salvation can be found only in Christ. There are many, many ways people find salvation. Same pressure that the early Christians were under. So I want to make this comment as I finish this morning. I'm convinced that you and I have to lovingly stand against the syncretism of our day. We can tolerate genuinely pluralism. What is pluralism? Pluralism is the idea that every great religious belief can coexist alongside each other in a loving way, peacefully, without killing each other. But syncretism is the idea that you can mash all of those things together and mindlessly just combine them into one kind of mishmash. And I want to put it to you today that our society is tolerant of that kind of idea, just to accept all beliefs, and that's unacceptable in terms of what Bible-believing Christians do believe. And so I conclude by saying this. There are two kinds of tolerance that I think we do need to cultivate that are necessary. And there's a third kind of tolerance that we do not need to tolerate as Christians. The first I want to say is this. Legal tolerance is the right for everyone to believe whatever faith or no faith they choose. For me, that is absolutely crucial in our society. And we as Christians should maintain our conviction that nobody should be coerced into believing what we believe. Freedom of religion must be retained in every Western democracy and promoted all over the world. People should be free to believe what they believe. Secondly, there's a social tolerance that we need to be engaged with. And that's the idea of respecting all people, even if we vigorously disagree with their opinion. I'm saying we need to learn as Christians to kindly disagree with people, to courteously disagree with people, and live at peace with all men and women, even of those of divergent faiths or who have no faith at all. The challenge as a Christian is to live at peace with all men, respecting everyone. And we certainly don't need any self-righteous Christians piously judging everybody else without having the admission, the humble admission, that we are all part of a fallen human race. We are all imperfect, and we are all created in the image of God, and all of us desperately need His salvation. Are you with me? So tolerance, like patience, for me, is a fruit of the Spirit. But the tolerance, the third kind of tolerance that I'm saying is, 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 marks our Western culture is something quite different. It's an uncritical tolerance. It avoids debate. It avoids vigorously searching for the truth. This kind of new Western European tolerance says you have no right to disagree with a liberal social agenda. You have no right to defend your view of morality, religion, and respect for human life. And ultimately, this kind of tolerance really respects absurd ideas, some of which, which are quite absurd, and then castigates anyone who believes in something that is absolute and who claims to have found truth. And so it seems to me that this kind of tolerance, as someone has said, includes every point of view except those points of view that do not include 
every point of view. That's the kind of tolerance that is a God in our age. And so the tolerance is only extended to those that march in step with the tolerant crowd. And so I put it to you that this kind of thinking is the one absolute in our culture, the one flag that people still say is worthy of honor. And that kind of tolerance, this kind of, um, this kind of uh, thing that I'm talking about, is an excuse for perpetual skepticism, never quite making a commitment to Christ, keeping your options open. It's a doorway also, ironically, for all sorts of bizarre ideas to be accepted and allowed to be put into practice. Are we being tolerant? There's no radical, radical debate about, is this really true? Is this really going to be helpful? And so into this context, my friends, is the breathtaking message of Colossians that speaks into this powerfully 2,000 years later. It's about the supremacy of Christ. Jesus has no equal. You have no equal, we sang this morning. I want to say it again. Jesus has no equal. Among every religious person, leader that has ever been in the world, Jesus has no equal. Jesus alone claims to be God's son and is God's son. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Indeed, that's what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the fullness, the sovereign image of God in the flesh. He's the first amongst all creation. This is the language that Paul gets us to understand who Jesus is. And on the basis of the finished work of the cross and his glorious resurrection, Peter says this in Acts 4. And there is salvation in everybody, in whoever you choose, in whoever is your personal God. No, Peter says, and there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we can be saved. And so, Paul, and I hope, I hope I'm asking you to study this letter in your own devotions as well. There are a number of warnings that Paul gives us as we will read the letter together. And he says, don't add to Jesus and don't subtract from Jesus. Just Ask God to help you understand the fullness of who Jesus is. Don't try and add to him and say, well, Jesus needs a bit of that and take, take some stuff that you don't understand away and say, well, I don't need that. Jesus doesn't need to be that to me. No, no, we have to embrace the fullness of who Christ is. And these are the warnings that Paul gives. Remember in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And then he warns and he says in verse 4, I say this to you, so that no one will deceive you through arguments that sound reasonable. Isn't that the challenge of our day? Oh, these arguments, they sound so reasonable. I need to consider that. That sounds reasonable. And Paul says, don't be deceived. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. So let no one distract you with arguments that sound reasonable, that distract you from who Christ is. Secondly, in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, Jesus, in the fullness, all the fullness of the deity, lives in Jesus in bodily form. And then he warns in verse 8, he says, Paul, be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human tradition and the element spirit, elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Isn't that how philosophy works? 
it sounds like so interesting. And so I'm studying a little bit of philosophy at the moment. And so fascinating. And when you get to the bottom, what is, what is the substance of what is being said? It's like you're putting your foot in, in like a swamp and there's nothing solid to stand on. And some things that in philosophy promise much but deliver very little. And in the end they say, oh, we can't be sure about that. Can't really be sure about that. Can't really be sure about anything actually. I want to say to you, as you live your life, you can be sure about everything. Because Christ loves you. He's bought you. Underneath your life are His everlasting arms. He has a future and a destiny for you. You can be confident of that. He's leading you by His Spirit. He is why? Because He is the fullness of the Godhead, dwelling in bodily form. He died and rose and now in eternity lives forever at the right hand of the Father, interceding and praying for you. Let that go deeply into your hearts. And thirdly, Paul says, don't get too fussed about religious observance. Don't get too fussed about religious days. And he's speaking as a Jew. Don't get too fussed about Sunday. Don't get too fussed about what you eat. Don't get too fussed about observing all sorts of ritual laws. He says in verse 16 of chapter 2, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to what you eat or drink, or in the matter of any feast, new moon, or Sabbath, all these things are only of the shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ Jesus. Come on. You can get excited. I'm getting Pentecostal now. You can, you can get excited. You can say amen. The reality of all these things, the fullness of all these things is Jesus. Everything else is but a shadow. It's a foretaste. It is just the hors d'oeuvre. The main thing is Jesus. He is the fullness of everything of, of who God is. And Paul says, get excited about that, and everything in your life is going to fall into place. I trust you're going to enjoy this journey. I trust you're going to learn with us. I want to encourage you. It's 15, 16 chapters. Read them one a week. Ask God to show you more of Jesus for your own life. And I promise you, if we go through this together, we're going to come out the other end with hearts full of worship for the great King, whose name is Jesus.